Now, welcome to another inspiring edition of Sound Insight with Dr. Tom Curran. Well, and welcome to the program, Father Wade Menezes. Father uh, Wade is here to talk today about his book, Overcoming the Evil Within. Father Wade, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. It's great to be with you again. So, Father Father Wade, as uh, we're talking about that theme in terms of overcoming the evil within, this book by Sophia, it's published by Sophia Institute Press in uh, conjunction with EWTN. Uh, Father, when people think about overcoming sin in their lives, uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the book that this is a theme that often gets sort of short shrift today. Either people are not thinking about that sin is a reality touching their lives. It might just be a theological category, but you bring out very wisely in a number of ways, the let's call it the existential manifestations that sin has in people's lives as sort of an entry point to say, look, sin is clinging to you or impacting you. You're clinging to it in ways that, you know what, you're not maybe aware of, and it has damaging effects. Yeah, you know, we believe as Catholic Christians, we have an intellect to know and a will to choose. And when I preach that truth of our faith to my congregations, say at the parish missions or a weekend retreat or a men's retreat I have coming up, I'm going to be saying the same thing because we're touching upon this very subject matter. I like to point to my brain, my head, and my heart. We have an intellect to know and a will to choose. Why do I point to the heart when I say and a will to choose? Because we always choose based on a love. Now, it may be a disordered love, or it possibly could be an ordered love. And poetically speaking, across cultures and across times, the human heart is seen as a symbol, an anchor, a vestige of love. So again, we have an intellect to know and a will to choose what the church would call in her teaching, her moral teaching, the good, the true, and the beautiful in concrete daily actions. And if we're not doing that, we become askewed in the moral life. And either wittingly or unwittingly, depending on how well the intellect is informed, we can lead ourselves down a very dark road. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Father, you mentioned uh, one of the beautiful gifts in this book, Overcoming uh, the Evil Within. And Cardinal Burke brings it out in his his promotion of your book, is the number of saints that you use as sources of confirmation or, or insight or foundational teaching about the nature of sin. Not only do you reference the scriptures and the catechism, but lots of quotes about the saints. And one of the quotes in the, in the early chapters talks about the fact that when we sin, we actually hurt ourselves even more than we hurt. We cause some kind of damage in the world, that there's a damage that comes to our own lives. And I'm not sure that folks are always thinking about that so much, that it darkens our intellect, it weakens our will, it disorders our passions, it increases concupiscence. You know, these are these negative effects of sin that it has on our lives. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just stop there. You're ready to jump in and say something. So, Yeah. You know, the, the full title of the book, as you well know, is Overcoming the Evil Within, The Reality of Sin and the Transforming Power of God's Grace and Mercy. And I I open up in the introduction, as you know, Tom, with the savage murder of St. Maria Goretti at age 11 by 20-year-old Alessandro Serenelli, who was a self-admitted lust addict, and he stabbed her 14 times uh, upon her refusing his advancement to rape her, and she would not acquiesce, and she's a martyr of the church for the virtues of purity and modesty, and yet she had one thing on her mind the following morning, just before she died. She died about 23 hours after the attack. And her mother, Asanta Goretti, was sitting at her hospital bed at the foot of the bed. And Maria told her mother, Mama, Mama, pray for Alessandro that I may one day see him in heaven. And through a series of events that are quite miraculous, Alessandro ends up having a a wonderful, wonderful conversion while serving his 29-year prison sentence. And when he gets out, uh, he's an absolutely completely changed man. So much so that today in 2022, there is a group of laity in Italy that are attempting to have Alessandro's cause introduced for sainthood. Through its proper process, you know, beginning with servant of God, then declared venerable, then beatification, but ultimately to sainthood. So 
overcoming the evil within, the reality of sin and the transforming power of God's grace and mercy. So Alessandro ended up recognizing the evil that he did indeed do. And this dovetails with your last point leading into this statement now for myself. He got it. He got the memo of the reality of sin, that it was taking him down a dark path to the point of murdering this poor young girl. And true, she appeared to him uh, in prison, um, but still, and that had a lot to do with his conversion, but still he had an intellect to know that he did wrong and a will now to choose the good and to not continue to go down that wrong path and let prison life harden him even more. And so that was a beautiful reality of Alessandro's life. And so, you know, there's a great quote by Archbishop Fulton Sheen. He says, God writes his name on the soul of every human person. And that makes sense because we're made in God's image and likeness. God writes his name on the soul of every human person. And that kind of dovetails with 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Become holy yourselves in every aspect of your conduct after the likeness of the Holy One who has called you. Remember, Scripture says, be holy as I am holy. So if God has written his name on every human heart, and we're called to be uh, holy as God is holy, because we are precisely made in his image and likeness, then we have to make sure to train our intellects, train our wills to always choose the good, the true, and the beautiful, as opposed to the opposite of that, which would be uh, uh, the false, uh, excuse me, the, the, the bad, the false and the ugly, as opposed to the good, the true, and the beautiful. And and to choose the good, the true, and the beautiful, where the human heart yearns to one day serve an eternity with its creator for just that, all eternity. And Alessandro got this memo. That's really powerful. Hey, this is Dr. Tom Curran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in the state of Washington and in Idaho. I've had the privilege and pleasure of helping dozens of families in the last two and a half years discern and find a, a strategy, a path, and a plan to help their families find a whole new life in eastern Washington and northern Idaho. If I could be of service to you in that, I would love to. Please reach out drtomcurran.com drtomcurran.com okay back to sound insight father wade in the book overcoming evil within you quote many many saints okay fun question you have a chance to get a dinner together and you can invite two or three of these saints to have a conversation about this book who do you have and why uh, i would have Saint Augustine, because of his own self-admitted lust addiction and his confessions, you know, he tells all in his confessions, which even till today, Tom, is, is a spiritual classic, even in secular universities, in literature courses, let alone the Catholic universities. And he tells all in his confessions, right? He fathered a, a child out of wedlock at age 17. Uh, he lived with a woman for 23 years whom he never married. Uh, all during those same 23 years, left behind him a string of discarded mistresses. And then he had a massive conversion at age 30, was proclaimed the Bishop of Hippo of Northern Africa by the people uh, at age 32 and a half to age 33. And today is one of the greatest doctors of the church. He's one of the doctors of grace, and he's also one of the doctors of moral theology, right? <laughs> this former self-admitted lust addict. That, that's the glory of being Catholic right there. That, that conversion is possible. So I would say Augustine, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, who fleshes out the moral life so well. Um, I would say also Maria Goretti on the forgiveness of sin, because she's such a powerful witness to the forgiveness of sin. Uh, I'm also a great lover of the philosophical reasonings of St. Edith Stein. And I know that she went through hell, literally, having died in the Auschwitz concentration camp. And yet she knew her martyrdom was probably impending. And she told her sister, Rosa, who was an extern sister at the same convent, Edith was an intern sister, uh, let us go to our people, Rosa, L come, let us go. And so she knew what was awaiting her. And yet 
uh, she prayed incessantly for the an end to the war and, and an end to the evil uh, of the war. So I would say those four right off the top of my head because they dealt with the reality of sin. But my gosh, you know, St. Mary of Egypt was a prostitute. Uh, St. Camillus de Lalis uh, suffered with his gambling addiction. Uh, Padre Pio uh, suffered from unjust anger. Uh, Saint uh, or Blessed Bartolo Longo uh, was heavily, heavily involved in Satanism and the occult while a university student at the University of Naples. And at age 19 was actually ordained, and I put that word in quotes, he was actually ordained a satanic high priest. And he swears that the day he went through that witch ritual, uh, he swears that he heard the demons audibly laughing at him. Uh, but praise God, it was very short-lived and he withdrew out of the occult and he renounced uh, everything he did in the occult and Satanism. And he made a good confession and became a very, very holy, holy person. Uh, so there's so many out there, you know. Uh, the point is, you know, the saints had their particular issues, dependencies, and addictions, just like we suffer from our particular issues, dependencies, and addictions. The other thing I like to remind my listeners is this, whether on radio or television or in person, look, the saints of the Catholic Church lived in the modern world of their time, just as you live in the modern world of your time. If they did it, meaning arrived at holiness, if they did it, you can do it. No excuses, because they had to deal with everything that was proper to their age, just like we have to deal with everything proper at our own age in which we live. And there's one more reality here. Uh, uh, reincarnation is a heresy in the Catholic Church. We are given one life and one life only. So God, who is all-knowing, all-omniscient, all-powerful, uh, God knew from all eternity— even before the six-day creation, what day and age he would have Father Wade Menezes live in, what day and age he would have St. Faustina live in just before World War II, what day and age he would have St. Augustine live in in the latter fourth, first part of the fifth century. God knew this from all eternity because there is no other life for St. Augustine. There is no other life for St. Faustina. There is no other life for Father Wade Menezes. Again, uh, uh, reincarnation is a heresy. So God must know that I'm up to the task if he's called me to this day and age, he must know you, Tom, are up to the task. If he's called you to this day and age and Augustine to his day and age, which fought some of the greatest heresies in the church without the benefit of Internet and printing press and all that. Uh, so so we live in the modern world of our time, just like the saints lived in the modern world of their time. Reincarnation is a heresy. This is it. God must know why he placed us when he placed us. And issues, dependencies, and addictions are across the board for every age. And again, Mary of Egypt's prostitution, Augustine's lust, Padre Pio's anger, whatever it is, you know, those are all things that we fight from within. How about if the source of the, of the sinful activity comes from without you? It comes from an outside source. Case in point, St. Marguerite de Yulville, the great Canadian patroness uh, from Quebec, Canada, um, you know, you you name it, and she suffered it all from outside sources. Uh, her her father's early death when she was only two, so she never knew her father. Uh, an unfaithful, adulterous husband who cheated on her behind her back. Um, a nasty mother-in-law who, by two biographical accounts, tried to kill her. Can you imagine your own mother-in-law trying to kill you? I mean, come on, <laughs> these are some of the stuff the saints had to deal with. And yet she was known to have a very joyful disposition, a very joyful, joyful temperament. And she had a very, very strong devotion to the first person of the most holy trinity, God the Father. Why? I don't know why. Maybe it's because she never knew her own father. And so she sought for that union with the father, the first person. She no doubt loved the son and the Holy Spirit too, but she especially had a, a fostering devotion to the father. So we we share so much with the saints that no age is... Uh, is uh, 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 not no age is, is exempt from any of these types of things. Yeah. Father, when I think about that, what would you say are some of the distinctivenesses that are part of the challenges we face today? I would say in this modern day and age, 22 years into the third millennium, uh, many of the sexual mores, um, everything from the sin of cohabitation, uh, the sin of adultery, um, pornography addiction, uh, illicit moral relationships. We did live in a day and age that is extremely relativistic um, uh, in regards to this category. 
Um, and sexuality, human sexuality is a great, great gift. It's a fantastic gift. It's a beautiful gift. And we Catholics believe that, that it's such a beautiful gift that we need to protect it and, and covet it in a good way and ensure that its expressions are done in a moral way, namely through a, a, a marriage covenant between one man and one woman for life. But I would say that would that would be one of the major areas of this modern day and age would be the just the general heading of sexual mores and and across the board i mean you look at unnatural marriage just the category of unnatural marriage which would be a subset of sexual mores well there's six major subsets to unnatural marriage there's adultery there's uh, uh fornication uh, sexual relations between the unmarried there's cohabitation and I put that separate from fornication because you can have fornication in cohabitation, but you can have fornication without cohabitation. The couple may or may not live together. So adultery, fornication, cohabitation, uh, so-called gay marriage, um, uh, polygamy, which has uh, three subsets of polyandry, many husbands, polygyny, many wives, and now polyamorous, many couples under one purported covenant. And then uh, sixthly, we have uh, second marriages and beyond that are contracted, while the first one is still presumed to be valid and licit, that is to say, without the benefit of an annulment. So the whole category of unnatural marriage under the subset of sexual mores, I think, illustrates my answer to your question well. And then you add into the fact that um, uh you know, pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry um, and all that that entails, um, you know, human trafficking and the sex slave trade, especially with young women and children, um, male and female. Uh, it's it's just atrocious. And so I would say that would be one of the main major areas. Well, when you think about a father, um, a lot of men who are husbands and fathers are attempting to lead and provide and protect their families on a path of holiness, right? They want to get their kids to heaven and they want to get their families to heaven. And if they can feel so powerless at the onslaught, it's like a, it's like a tsunami coming at them in terms of the impurity, the immodesty, just the, the that is a, a, around them at every turn, whether it's a billboard or kids walking down the street or whether it's the local beach or whether it is online sources that are one quick swipe. And all of a sudden now you've got, uh, just such impurity right in your face that can shock and desensitize kids. It is, it feels overwhelming. What do you, what do you suggest to, to men? Well, in women who are also watching or listening when it comes to battling against such uh, the tsunami of impurity, you know, to the men, I, I think there's a special calling to be the priest of the home, the Christ figure of the home, uh, the one who is in charge of making sure that uh, evil forces are kept at bay from the threshold of the home, the, the threshold of the door leading into the home. Um, the problem is so many homes today are fatherless and it, it, it's a very sad reality, but it but it is reality. And so uh, we have to get back to the basics of the sanctification of marriage and family life. Uh, the importance of family prayer. You know, I like to recommend to families that still have toddlers or up to age around 10 or 11, you know, one night rosary, one night chaplet of divine mercy, one night rosary, one night chaplet of divine mercy, so that your children grow up knowing both beaded prayers, the, the most holy rosary and the divine mercy chaplet. Tom, these are virtual weapons in the good sense to, to ward off evil from the home. The devil hates the rosary. The devil hates the divine mercy chaplet. Um, and so we cannot underestimate the power of prayer. The importance of the spouses uh, forming a unity um, that uh, the children see that they can't break through a barrier between mom and dad because mom and dad are so united on this front that there's no way that I could pin a wedge between them. Let's say their 18-year-old daughter wants to announce to them that she's going to move into their to, into the home with her boyfriend, but she knows that her mother and father are so united on this, whereas if she believes she can get to one but not the other, she'll want to wedge that wedge in between mom and dad. But if mom and dad are united on the faith front, the morals front, and the, re and the overall religious living front, then that's a powerful message to the kids, a powerful message to the kids. Yeah. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. 
I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. You know, Father Wade, you're uh, you're talking about the the importance of bolstering the strength of faith of parents, right? And that means we look to the church, to the sacraments, to the teaching of the church, to the to the liturgical life of the church. I've heard it said. I think it was Pope Pius the Twelfth who said that um, when you have a diminishment of the effectiveness of the church, it's because of one of three or all three. Uh, diminishments, whether whether it was moral decay, liturgical decay, or doctrinal decay, that those three um, would lead to a diminishment of the vitality and vibrancy of faith. And it strikes me that those three come together in your book, Overcoming the Evil Within. So in particular, you focus uh, a chapter on the sacrament of penance and reconciliation. Yeah, you know, there's there's nine chief benefits to a, a regularly received confession, uh, nine chief benefits that are given to us by Pope Pius Twelfth and echoed by Pope Paul VI, and they speak volumes, each of the nine. And this is whether or not it's just venial sin that happens to be confessed at that particular confession, or whether it's just mortal sin that happens to be confessed at that particular confession, or whether it's a combination of both mortal and venial sin that happen to be confessed at that particular confession, it doesn't matter. These are the nine chief benefits of a frequent confession. Uh, self-knowledge is increased. That, that's huge. We have to have good self-knowledge. St. Thomas Aquinas says it's impossible to grow in holiness if you don't possess good self-knowledge. And then he defines that. He says good self-knowledge is simply knowing your virtues to advance them and knowing your vices to begin to uproot them out of your life. So good self-knowledge, it's increased. Self-knowledge is increased. Christian humility grows. Uh, bad habits are corrected in daily living. Spiritual neglect or tepidity, lukewarmness, is resisted. Um, also, uh, uh, conscience is purified. Uh, the will is strengthened. And a salutary self-control is achieved in daily life. Uh, you're starting to gain control over things that before you didn't, like your unjust anger, your, your lack of patience, or your alcoholism, for example. And then grace is increased, of course, in virtue of the sacrament itself. And confession, because it wipes away uh, venial, uh, because it wipes away venial sin and mortal sin, which is another way of saying personal sin uh, or actual sin, okay, because confession wipes away actual sin, personal sin, which is another way of saying mortal and venial sin, it echoes the grace of baptism, because baptism not only wipes away the original sin that we inherit from our first parents, baptism also wipes away actual or personal sin or mortal or venial sin. This is why the 27-year-old who enters the Catholic Church in full membership at the Easter Vigil, who's never, ever been baptized, right? The pastor of that parish where they enter the church at the Easter Vigil, the pastor of that parish will not have them go to confession first. There's no need. The baptism they receive at the Easter Vigil will not only wipe away the uh, original sin that they inherited in at birth or at conception from their first parents, uh, but the baptism will also wipe away all actual or personal or mortal and venial sin. Now, let's reverse that now. Let's say the 27-year-old was indeed baptized in a valid Trinitarian formula at age seven. And now at age 27, they're entering the Catholic Church. And the, the Catholic pastor has ascertained that their Presbyterian baptism at age seven was valid. It was done in a Trinitarian formula because the, the, the candidate entering the church has an actual certificate from their Presbyterian church saying that so-and-so was baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's written right on the certificate from 20 years ago from the Presbyterian church so that the pastor has it on good faith that this person's baptized validly. In that case, the pastor does have them go to confession, and they're bound to confess any known mortal sins. They're welcome to confess the venial sins, but they're bound to confess any known mortal sins, grave matter done with fullness of knowledge and done with deliverance of their will. 
from the age of seven all the way up now until age 27, from after their baptism at age seven up till the time now of the Easter vigil, showing that bapt uh, showing that confession echoes the good fruits and the good works of baptism. So this is what Pius XII and Paul VI mean when they say that grace is increased in virtue of the sacrament itself by making a frequent confession, and that it echoes the graces and makes stronger the graces received at baptism. That's really beautiful. It's so powerful when you think about it, Father. 20 years ago, I arrived out here in the Pacific Northwest and helped out at a confirmation class, and I was preparing these young men and women for confirmation. They were high schoolers, probably sophomores or juniors. And said to them, so when was your last confession? And it was my first reconciliation, first confession, first reconciliation. I've never been to confession. And then someone said, well, yeah, you were with me. Remember when we went up to the priest and he said, speak one word to you, one word to me. And it, that was confession. And, and that was their experience. And only one of the students that I was preparing had gone to confession since their first reconciliation. And that was because they were on some kind of retreat and, and it was uh, offered. And so they went, which is a horror. You talk about a, a de <laughs> demonic swindle. Yeah. So I don't know, in your, as you travel around, do you, are you sensing that that past um, is, in is the, diminishing? I do in the strong Catholic circles where the, where the parish has a sod, solid Catholic parish life which is usually a parish where the pastor truly leads as a father, okay? He sees his flock as his children. And so going back to the three-legged stool that you mentioned earlier, there's great liturgy, there's great morals, and there's great living of the faith. You know, that that, that all echoes um, uh, an old maxim, lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. Uh, the, the law of prayer or how we pray is the law of belief or how we believe, which in turn is the law of life, of how we live. So if I believe how I worship, if I believe uh, how I worship, that, that will lead me into a way of how I want to live my life. Um, and, and so in the solid Catholic parishes that live that Lex Orandi, that Lex Credendi, that Lex Vivendi, Latin for the law of prayers, the law of belief, and is the law of life or the law of living. Yes, it's very strong parish life, and the, the parents get the memo. They have their kids going to confession regularly. Uh, if it's, there's a Catholic school attached, the pastor makes sure that the Catholic school, school students, K through 8 or 9 through 12, make confession at least every month to a month and a half. Uh, in that case, yes, I'm seeing those things, but I'm seeing those things in strong Catholic pockets where the parish life or the diocesan life even is very, very strong. And the diocese as a whole is known to be very solid as a diocese and really convey the faith well at the individual parish level. Yeah, I, I have to admit. So when we we moved to Eastern Washington uh, about three years ago, and we started attending a parish, and my kids now go to confession every month or two, but it's because of the spiritual fathering of the priests. They make yeah. it an emphasis to say, access this healing grace, access the forgiveness of the Lord, and they bring up the connection between unrepented mortal sin uh, in unforgiven mortal sin and confession, and accessing the Eucharist, receiving Holy Communion, which all of a sudden you raise the bar in your life to say, oh, wow, I, I can't come forward to receive Holy Communion if I haven't made a good confession. So right. I, I think that's a that's a tremendous gift. Well, remember too, out, out of all seven sacraments, only two can be received over and over and over and over again with much frequency. Which two are they of the seven? The Eucharist and confession. The other five cannot. In fact, of the other five, only three can be received once. That's it, once, because of the indelible mark or spiritual character they leave on the soul never to be erased. Those are baptism, confirmation, and holy orders, right? The other two of the five can be received again, but it wouldn't be with a lot of frequency. What are those two? Matrimony and the anointing of the sick. So, for example, if your spouse died, Tom, 
the church teaches you can surely remarry, okay? But it wouldn't be daily, right? If receiving the sacrament of matrimony, right? Uh, you're going to have their, your local police knocking on your door wanting to know where yeah. all your spouses are disappearing to each day, you know, and you're contracting a new marriage each day. But it can be received again, but not with a lot of frequency. Same with the anointing of the sick. We can receive the anointing of the sick whenever one begins to be in danger of death because of sickness or old age, canon law teaches us, okay? So, so... The last two now, Eucharistic confession, oh yeah, bring it, bring it. They can be received daily if you want them. For example, daily mass, right? Now, only Sunday is an obligation, a holy day of obligation, not because we fear God, but because we love him. And it's it's if it is a fear, it's a filial fear, not a servile fear. So every Sunday mass is a holy day of obligation, but it's done out of love, not fear, at least not servile fear. Uh, but you can receive the Eucharist daily, daily mass, right? Um, I remember a, a, pro, a dear friend of mine, a, pro, a Protestant Baptist. Uh, we ha we were housemates while going to college uh, decades ago. And I remember him telling me when we first met, he says, yeah, he goes, we not only meet on Sundays, we meet on Wednesday nights too. And I said, <laughs> are you kidding me? I said, we Catholics have daily mass daily mass, you know, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays, you know, so we, we still go, go back and forth on that even till this day, but, but, uh, and then confession, technically speaking, technically speaking, a person can receive confession daily. Now, if they're doing that because of scruples or scrupulosity, then surely that's not a healthy practice. Okay. That said, there is no law that says you can't receive confession daily. You can Okay. Did you so hear? look 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 at the lives of Saint John Paul II and Saint Mother Teresa. It's known that they went weekly. Did did they go because of scruples? I sincerely doubt it. I believe they were very balanced in the moral life. By the way, scrupulosity for the benefit of our hearers or listeners uh, is simply defined as seeing sin where there is no sin, or seeing mortal sin when in reality it's just venial sin, or seeing venial sin when in reality it's just a daily fault or weakness. Okay, that's scruples or scrupulosity. The person's making themselves their savior, and they deny Jesus Christ the right of being their savior. That's a, a quick layman's definition, if you will, of scrupulosity. So daily confession, although it can be had, isn't healthy if, if it's being led by scruples or scrupulosity. Same thing with a weekly confession. But listen to this. Show me a person who goes to confession faithfully once a month, faithfully, 12 times a year. For example, uh, on, on the, in preparation for the first Friday devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, or in preparation for the first Saturday devotion in honor of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, which we received from Sister Lucia, the Divine Mercy, uh, the uh, Our Lady of Fatima seer. Um, show me a person who goes to confession faithfully once a month, and chances are, chances are they won't have mortal sin to confess. Mm -hmm. Why? It's precisely the practice of a monthly confession that is per se keeping them away from mortal sin. And that's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. That's pretty awesome. That is amazing. I'm talking with Father Wade Menezes about his wonderful book, Overcoming the Evil Within, which you can see here is available on sophiainstitute.com, Sophia Institute Press, provides so many wonderful books, including Overcoming the Evil Within. I, I want to wrap up, if I may, talking about confession here, since we're still on it. There's a wonderful article that dovetails beautifully with my book, Overcoming the Evil Within, The Reality of Sin and the Transforming Power of God's Grace and Mercy, by Father Ed Broom, like a sweeping broom. Father Ed Broom, anybody can find it. Uh, Father Ed Broom, it, it, the article itself is found at catholicexchange.com, catholicexchange.com by Father Ed Broom. And it's simply titled, 10 Ways That Confession Sets Us Free. And I'll just comb through these quickly by Father Ed Broom. Ten Ways That Confession Sets Us Free. Again, by Father Ed Broom, found at catholicexchange.com. By healing, it heals the soul. By freedom from slavery. By moving from personal confusion to peace and equanimity. By freedom from a conscience filled with guilt. By joy. Joy is a way that confession sets us free, huh? Uh, by benefiting from the paschal mystery of our Lord Jesus Christ from death to life, his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, huh? By acting as a curative and preventative medicine for future falls, all right? Uh, 
by serving as an act of humility to crush one's pride. Number nine, by fostering growth in self-knowledge. Again, St. Thomas Aquinas teaches that we need good self-knowledge to grow in holiness, right? Know your virtues to advance them. Know your vices to begin to uproot them out of your life. And then by fostering, which you said something uh, alluding to this earlier, Tom, number 10, the 10th way that confession sets us free, it's by fostering more fervent and more efficacious holy communions. Because we're in a state of grace. We're not receiving a sacrilegious communion while still having mortal sin on our soul. We're receiving a holy communion. So just a great little article, 10 Ways That Confession Sets Us Free by Father Ed Broom at catholicexchange.com that really dovetails beautifully uh, with, with my book, Overcoming the Evil Within. Father, in, the, in your book, one of the themes that shows up is sin is personal. Sin impacts Christ. And you quote the catechism quite a bit. And there's a very powerful quote in the catechism that says that through our sin, we become the authors and ministers of all that Christ suffered in his passion and in his death on the cross. I mean, I like to think I'm an author and a minister in my own way, but I don't like to think that I'm the author of the sufferings that Christ endured in his passion uh, and in his yeah. death on the cross. And and it's a very striking thing to contemplate Christ crucified, to stir within us both right. the confidence in God's mercy, but also the horror of sin. Yeah. And well, this is true because of the 14 categorical consequences of sin, uh, personal, social, ecclesial, and cosmic. Uh, this is number 1469 of the Catechism. It says that there's four breaches caused by sin, mortal or venial, when the human person sins. First of all, there's personal consequences. The person works against himself or herself when they sin. For example, their virtue becomes constricted more because they're in a sinful way, whether venially or mortally. So they work against themselves personally. They, they work against themselves socially with their relationship with others. So for example, why is it that the husband and father with a wife and teenagers at home who's flirting with the secretary at work, even though there's no relationship going on exclusively, he, he heavily, heavily flirts with her. And keep in mind, the wife and the teenagers at home know nothing about it. Why is it when he comes home from work, there's almost immediate friction, immediate friction between he and his wife and he and his children, even though they know nothing about the relationship. It's the social consequences of sin. Hmm. Okay. Thirdly, ecclesial consequences of sin. Uh, the very body of Christ itself, the church is disrupted by sin. You want proof of that? Look no further than um, the, the priestly scandals, okay? And that's just one example, let alone lay, lay people scandals, right? Look at the priestly scandals that have rocked the church. And by the way, make no bones about it, Tom, and, and our listeners right now, make no bones about it. The devil's after priests. Why? I'll tell you why. No priests, no mass. No mass, no Eucharist. No Eucharist, no Jesus truly present. No Jesus truly present, no church which is his bride, no church which is his bride, no vehicle of salvation, no vehicle of salvation, no salvation. And that means only one thing, and it begins with a D, damnation. So the devil's after priests. So ecclesial consequences to personal sin, right? And lastly, the cosmic consequences of personal sin. Uh, you want proof of that? Look no further than the book of Genesis. When our first parents sinned, the beautiful Garden of Eden turned in on itself. And because you have done this, O man, from henceforth you shall toil by the sweat of your brow. And because you have done this, O woman, from henceforth you shall give birth with the pangs of labor. Okay, so the very cosmos were affected. So there's personal, social, ecclesial, and cosmic consequences to sin. Now, all that said, that same paragraph, number 1469, says that whenever the penitent repents of his sin, mortal or venial, one sin or multiple sins, whenever he repents of that, those sins, those four breaches are healed. Okay, so there's personal healing, social healing, ecclesial healing, and cosmic healing. That's pretty powerful. And we also got to remember that once we've confessed the sin, we got to go forward and no longer look back. There, there's five passages from scripture, Tom, that I absolutely love. 
that show us the reality that once we confess our sin, we don't look back. Now, I don't know how old you are, Tom, but I just turned 57. So I love a little bit of classic rock. So think of, of the 1978 Boston hit, Don't Look Back. Don't look back. A new day's breaking. It's been so long since I felt this way. Okay. Listen to this. Luke 962. These are five scripture passages. Do not look back on your past sins. Once you have confessed them, you got to move forward, not look back. Luke 9 verse 62. Jesus himself is saying these words, quote, no one who puts a hand to the plow and yet keeps looking back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Got to move forward, right? Philippians 3.13, St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, the church members at Philippi, quote, I focus on this one thing and one thing only, forgetting the past and looking forward only to what lies ahead. Okay. Second Peter 2, verse 22, which is very graphic, but which gets the point across. Easy to remember. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Peter says, do not be like a dog that keeps returning to its own vomit, quoting Proverbs 26, 11, nor be like a sow that after washing herself returns to wallow in her mire. No, don't do that. Move forward. John 8, 11 has Jesus telling the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Now, when you tell someone to go, Tom, are you telling them to go forwards or backwards? No, You're telling forwards, them to go yes. forward, go and sin no more. And lastly, from the Old Testament, Isaiah 12, 2 has the prophet exclaiming joyfully to the father, I will go forward confidently now. I will go forward confidently now and will no longer be afraid. God is the source of my strength. He is the tower of my defense. The Lord has made himself my protector. Five That's very powerful. Passages to move That's forward. very powerful. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Father, you, you say these passages when you line them up like that. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I remember that. Oh, I remember. But wait a minute. Do you see the power, the force of it? Collectively. When, you, when, when you see, when you just lay out the word of God like that, that's really beautiful. I'm talking with Father Wade Menezes about his wonderful book, Overcoming the Evil Within, which you can see here is available on sophiainstitute.com. Father, in your book, when you have your chapter on um, the sacrament of penance and reconciliation, we've touched upon contrition and uh, the that true heartfelt sorrow and uh, focusing on Christ crucified stirs that deep sorrow you focused on confessing and the uh, the terrible ruptures that it brings to our lives and how God's mercy heals those ruptures you also mentioned satisfaction the the importance of penance doing penance how does penance help us go forward how does it help uproot those things that we we want to and strive to leave behind in, in confession. When we talk about penance, for example, the sacrament of penance, or even penance in general, we're talking about three realities, okay? Contrition or contriteness, okay? You're feeling contrite. You're sorry for what you've done. Contrition, okay? Satisfaction, making amends for what you've done. If with the sacrament of penance, you want to satisfy uh, uh, the, 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 the penance that the priest has given you, you know, uh, say a divine mercy chaplet, for example, or serve at a soup kitchen for two, two days of the week or for, for two times or whatever during Lent, whatever it is, you want to satisfy that, but you also want to confess the sin. Okay. So actually the order would be contrition, confession, and satisfaction mm -hmm. that makes up our penance. We want to be contrite of heart. We want to confess the sin and we want to make satisfaction. Now, even if we're not talking about the sacrament of penance, but, but let's say let's say uh, two brothers-in-laws are sorry because they had a falling out, one particularly who was the instigator of it all. He's really feeling contrite, okay? He wants to confess to the brother-in-law that he's sorry and he wants to, you know, he wants to make amends. And then he wants to satisfy that amendment by maybe doing something kind for the brother-in-law. So even in everyday affairs, we see these, these three realities when we seek out penance for any wrongdoing we've done venially or mortally. We have the contriteness, the contrition. We have the confession. We confess it, okay, which is simultaneously a humbling acknowledgement of the reality that we've sinned. And then we want to satisfy what we've done. Now, within the sacrament of penance, when we're talking about the sacrament of confession or the sacrament of penance and reconciliation, also called the sacrament of conversion in the catechism, per se, we see 
contriteness. Doesn't mean you have to have the gift of tears, although some people do have the gift of tears in confession, but it's not required. Just a, a, a basic sense of true contriteness, okay? As opposed to this, as opposed to this example. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. My last confession was, I don't know, Father, five years ago. And Father, I got to be honest with you. I'm here today only because my sister and her husband, my brother-in-law, have asked me to be the godfather for my new nephew tomorrow who's going to be baptized. So that's the only reason why I'm here. Well, there's no contriteness there. There's no contrition there. You're there only because the baptism is tomorrow and they've asked you to be the godfather. So my point is, there's got to be true contrition, not, not necessarily the gift of tears, but, but a contriteness. Then confession. If it's mortal sin, two things are required, kind and approximate number. Confession is not about greater graphic detail, kind and approximate number. Uh, and then if it's venial sin, you only have to give kind. You don't have to give the approximate number. Okay. And then satisfaction. You have to satisfy the penance the priest gives you. By the way, on that second point, uh, confession of sins, if it's mortal sin, it's all that's required is kind and approximate number. The church doesn't require great or graphic detail. Thank goodness she doesn't require great or graphic detail when we confess our sins, right? But you do have to uh, give kind and approximate number. What's kind mean? Simply name it, name it simply. Okay. Uh, Father, I, I got into a serious physical altercation one time with a fellow co-worker at work. We work at a factory and on the assembly line, we got into a, a, a real serious physical fight. That's it. You don't have to give any more detail than that. One kind and approximate number. It happened one time and it was a serious physical altercation. Okay. Now there is a third point that needs to be confessed. If it's present, it may not be present. And it's this, it's any militating circumstance that makes an already mortal sin objectively more grave. Uh, the older theological textbooks called it the changing of the specie of the sin, okay? Example, I'll use the same example. Father, I need to confess one time a serious physical altercation. And Father, it was with my own brother. So a physical fight is a physical fight is a physical fight. It's a serious sin, okay, where you actually hurt the person, maybe even send them to the hospital, okay? But if it's with your own brother, your own natural blood brother, that's objectively more grave, still serious with a fellow coworker on the assembly line at the factory where you both work, but it's objectively more grave if it's with a, a natural blood brother. So for mortal sin, kind and approximate number. And if it's present, it may not be present, any militating circumstance that makes the already mortal sin objectively more grave. And if that, that aspect is present, how will you know it? By having made a good what before you walked into the confessional? By having made a good examination, examination of, conscience. of conscience, okay? And if it is present, that, that third point, the militating circumstance that makes the already mortal sin objectively more grave, even that you confess simply, like I just did. Oh, and by the way, Father... It was my own brother, my own natural blood brother. That's it. That's all that's required. If you want to talk about this more, then set up an appointment for spiritual direction. But confession is not meant to be daunting or laborious with greater graphic detail and explanations and everything else. No, the church teaches in her liturgical documents on the sacrament of penance for mortal sin, kind and approximate number. And for venial sin, all you have to list is kind. Remember, venial sins per se don't need the confessional. You're welcome to take them to the confessional, but you don't have to. There's other ways that venial sins are forgiven. For example, the penitential rite at the beginning of Mass. What's the whole purpose of having a penitential rite at the beginning of Mass? So that when we come up to Holy Communion a half hour from then, we won't even have venial sins on our soul. Worthy Holy Communion received. Sacramental Holy Communion worthily received. Wipes away venial sin. Um let's say if you received Holy Communion in the nursing home with your grandmother because the deacon visiting your grandmother had an extra host. There was no penitential rite per se, but the, the Holy Communion wiped away venial sin, provided you live in such a way regularly that you make a regular act of contrition, like through a daily examination of conscience, etc. Okay. Um, how about carrying out the three eminent good works in any combination, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, or any, any combination thereof of the 14 works of mercy, seven for the body, the corporal works of mercy, seven for the soul, the spiritual corporal works of mercy. That wipes away venial sin, not because of the works themselves, mind you, but because of the charity those works help foster, 
for your fellow human being and bring you to the practice of charity, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So we don't do these things for the works themselves. We do them for the charity they help foster because the human person is social by nature and love is the greatest virtue there is. It's the queen of all the virtues, okay? So, so, but mortal sin, mortal sin, yes. The ordinary channel for mortal sin to be forgiven is the sacrament of penance. Venial sin may be taken to the sacrament of penance. That's one of the ways that venial sins is forgiven, the sacrament of penance. But you don't have to. In fact, I said earlier, show me a person who goes faithfully once a month to confession, 12 times a year and honor the first Friday or first Saturday devotion to the Sacred Heart and Immaculate Heart. Chances are they won't have mortal sin to confess month to month. In that case, they would be confessing venial sins. Okay, so you can take venial sins to the confessional. It's one of the ways that venial sins are indeed forgiven. Just don't forget that there's a multiplicity of other ways that venial sins are forgiven. Many of the saints say that whenever we bless ourselves with the sign of the cross, with the particular willed intention at the same time, like walking in a church for mass, we bless ourselves with holy water at the main entrance. If we at the same time, with the deliberate act of the will, recall to mind our baptism in Christ, that wipes away venial sin. So there's a multiplicity of ways that venial sins are forgiven. And venial sins need to only be confessed according to kind, if you take them to confession, but mortal sins, when you take them to confession, which is the ordinary channel for mortal sins to be forgiven, need kind and approximate number. And if it's present, it may not be present. Any militating circumstance that makes the already mortal sin objectively more grave. And what is a mortal sin? Three things. Grave matter done with fullness of knowledge and done with deliberate consent of your will. Grave matter. It seriously contravenes God's moral law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Fullness of knowledge. You have fullness of knowledge that this particular act contravenes God's moral law, and seriously so or gravely so. And number three, you do it with deliberate consent of your will anyway. You willfully do it anyway. Grave matter, fullness of knowledge, and done with deliberate consent of your will. If all three of those are present, you have a mortal sin. If any one or two of those is missing, you have a venial sin. Uh, that's Father Wade when he's just talking with me today about his book, Overcoming the Evil Within. And uh, he's referring quite a bit from his chapter on the Sacrament of Penance and Reconciliation. This book is really, it's on the reality of sin and on the transforming power of God's grace and mercy. Uh, you can get this book at sophiainstitute.com. Yeah, well, uh, Father Wade, uh, there's more to cover in your book, but we don't have any more time. We're, we're out of time, if you can believe it. Where does uh, it go? Where does that time go, Tom? Uh, Father, you, you get so much content in. I got to tell you, you're very uh, concise and you, you communicate a lot of rich content very quickly. Uh, you, well, it's not a surprise for folks that listen to you on, uh, on your call-in program and on other programs that you do on EWTN, both for the television and the radio. So you, the well, Lord I, has really blessed you quite a bit, Father, and it's a great blessing to have you on the program. Well, I appreciate that. And I encourage your listeners, uh, your own listeners, Tom, at your show uh, to be sure to tune in to Open Line Tuesday, each Tuesday, where I'm the host, and uh, to feel free to call in with a question. Nice. I would love that. Thank you so much, Father. Okay, Tom, God bless you now. Take care.